Hello and welcome to the Modern Divorced Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Tarasio. I'm the owner of Modern Law, a family law firm in the Phoenix area. I've been a divorce attorney for more than 15 years. I've got four kiddos and I'm divorced myself. And on this podcast, we're going to cover everything related to divorce, be it legal issues, financial issues, children issues, blended family issues, counseling, mediation, and more. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hi there, this is Billy Tarasio with the Modern Divorce Podcast, and today I am joined by the godfather, attorney Donald Colburn, and we are going to talk about issues related to inheritance, separate property, community property, and who owns the house when there's a disclaimer deed. Don, welcome to the show. Hello, all of you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And yourself? Doing great. Doing great. I'm glad that we're talking about this because... It comes up all the time. It does. So many of our clients have a situation where they purchased a house during marriage or one spouse has. And at some point during the life of that property, either when it was purchased or during a refinance, somebody signed a disclaimer deed and it might not be owned by them anymore. This happens all the time. Um, Don, what should someone do if they find themselves in that situation? You should go talk to a lawyer. It it sounds like it is black and white. Uh, It is not. And a lot of it depends on what the intention of the parties were. For example, if uh, the parties mistakenly signed a warranty deed and it was intended to be separate, it was funded by separate property, uh, the realtor understood that. The title company understood it, and all of a sudden, they mistakenly issued a uh, warranty deed to both of them as community property. Under certain circumstances, it can be unwound. Generally, uh, what you bring into the marriage, if you keep it separate, is separate, and the court is obligated to award that to you. Generally, uh, what you inherit either before the marriage or during the marriage is separate if you keep it separate. And then generally everything acquired during the marriage, uh, which is uh, funded by community funds, earnings during the marriage, uh, and so forth is community, except if you intend it to be separate. So whenever you have a situation where there is property claimed to be separate, or it, there is a waiver deed, or there's a disclaimer deed, or a warranty deed, and that was not intended, you really, really need to get to lawyers who understand the, the situation because it's complicated and it is not as simple for people to figure out as it appears. You're you're absolutely right. You know, the rules seem fairly simple, right? If you had it before you're married, it's separate. If it's inheritance, it's separate. If you earned it during the marriage, it's community. Um, but in reality, for anybody who gets married, who's not, you know, starting their lives together, when two people start their lives together, and stay married a long time, then the community property rules work as intended, right? Exactly. Um, 
you, you started out together and you took the bargain on each other and, you know, it just, it works out how it works out. And then when you get a divorce, everything gets split. That's the simple case. But if you're dealing with people who got married a little later in life or who are on a second marriage, um, then the community property rules get very messy. Exactly. And you might want to consider a prenuptial agreement in those circumstances before you get marriage or a postnuptial agreement. That's a whole nother topic and is complicated also. A little preventive medicine saves a lot of disgruntlement and anxiety and discord down the line. You're exactly right. So the thing that people need to understand is when you're getting married, you are opting into a construct. And if you are a you know, couple that starts out with nothing, then the community property construct might work perfectly for you. But if you are um, on your second marriage or your third marriage or older, then the community property construct might not be in your best interest. And you should know by not doing a prenuptial agreement, you're still opting into some construct. So do you want to be in charge of that or not? And whether or not you decide to get a prenup, you need to understand what what it means. And it might be messier for you not to get a prenup than to get a prenup, or at least think about you know what you're going to do. So, for instance, let's let's think about it. You know, we've got uh, we've got a client who is on his second marriage, and he um, he got married, and she moved into his house with his kids. The wife did. Now. It's his house from before marriage. So does she have a claim? Potentially for an equitable lien, which is another complicated. She probably doesn't have a title claim as long uh, as it remains in his separate name. But there's case law that provides that if you pay for it and you're living there for a a long period of time, the community may have an equitable lien that the court's got to determine and decide upon that gives you rights, even though you don't have any legal title to that property. And if enough community funds have been uh, spent on that separate residence, you may get an equal distribution under the case law. Yeah. Complicated again. Uh, you need advice and counsel, and you need somebody experienced in dealing with it to guide you through that and get your protection, whatever side you're on. Yeah. I mean, you would think it would be as simple as, no, she moved into his house. It was his house pre-marriage. No, it should be his property, right? It, it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. So, um the, the moral of the story is if anybody tells you that, that this is a simple thing and two people should walk away, that only works if both people agree to it. Otherwise, you can have very, very different opinions about how property should be distributed. The other thing I want to talk about is let's say you have, um, you have, you talked about title rights and equitable rights. What's the difference between a title right and an equitable right? Title is whose name is on the property. And even if only one person's uh, name is on the property, if the intent was to take it as joint or community or vice versa, both are on there, 
and it was done in error, you may be able to unwind that. Equitable rights, uh, the family law courts or courts of equitable. So there's case law that allows you, as we have discussed, where you have no title right, you have no legal interest in the property, you have an equitable interest that the court can assign to you in a family law situation. Most people go into marriages without thinking about any of this, even though it's a second marriage. And the discord often happens at the other end. So a little bit of of analysis up front goes a long way to keeping these from being costly, lengthy disputes when the marriage doesn't work out. The other issue that we're seeing come up a lot right now, the housing market in Phoenix is hot and it's hot around the country. And, And many times when a refinance happened or when someone took title for whatever reason, only one spouse is on the property. Now, if that spouse decides to sell the property, it can be sold and it can be sold quickly. What can the non-owning spouse do to protect their rights? Uh, They can write the realtor, say that there is a family thing, if that is true, and that your client has Uh, equitable rights to that property and ask that it not be sold. You can ask that the proceeds be put in trust for that reason if it is sold uh, until the issue is resolved on equitable liens where one's party's name is not on the title and the character of that property is determined as is required by the family court. Uh, There are list pendants rights but those require additional analysis. uh, And oftentimes just letting the realtor know will, uh, and you can, will stop the transaction. Uh, There is some risk in that because if you have a deal and it does not go through and you've interfered with it, uh, then there may be issues. But all of that is very complicated. It is a fact by fact case and you need to consult with somebody who's knowledgeable about it in order to protect your rights. What you're saying is so important because there are so many people on social media giving legal advice, lay people who are like, lay people meaning non-lawyers, who are like, it doesn't matter, it's all 50-50 anyway. And the moral of the story is it's not. 50-50 anyway. It's just not. Like sometimes it is and many, many times it's not. And the the law regarding community property is not as simple as you would think it is. So let's say somebody inherits money and um, they use a portion of it to buy a marital home. Do they get that money back? Once it's converted to community and no longer separate that money's gone and you need to keep separate property either that you bring into the marriage totally separate in an account that community funds, earnings during the marriage, property during the marriage, investments during the marriage aren't commingled with. And the same isn't true with inherited property, whether it's before or during the marriage, you got to keep that separate or it creates all kinds of problems. And these issues come up all the time and they really need uh, 
people to sit down and explain the circumstances, get the documents that back it up, and depending on the circumstances, figure out what your options are, what the cost is, and then decide upon a course of action based upon individual facts. And again, it's really important you get to, to uh, a family law firm that analyzes these kind of things because it's not simple. You're right. And not every family law attorney might be aware of all of the nuances of, of these laws. So for instance, let's say somebody gets that inheritance and they want to buy a house and they want and get a bigger house if they put their inheritance towards the marital home, but they want to protect that. So maybe they come up with an agreement with their spouse, like, would that be enforceable? Could you do that? Yeah, she can do that. And that's basically called a post-nuptial agreement. It's got to meet certain terms and conditions. Uh, there's got to be consideration for it. There's got to be full disclosure. You both have to have a right to counsel. And then you have a shot at it being uh, allowed and acceptable as a binding agreement. A lot of things you can do before the marriage and during the marriage by agreement. But again, you have to have knowledgeable people so it's enforceable. Right. So just just an agreement between the two of you that's an email might not cut it. But if you both intend for this inheritance to go back to the person who invested it, then it might be worth just spending a couple hours with an attorney to get an actual binding and forcible document. Do those documents have to be report recorded? They should be. Postnuptial agreements can be report recorded. Yeah. Yes, they can. Okay. You, you can. You don't have to re record the entire agreement, but you give give notice to creditors and other people that there is an agreement. You don't want that in the public domain and recorded, but the verification that you do have this agreement, so that people that are lending money, doing things, are on notice that you have a separate agreement. They can ask for it, but it's not available to the general public. That's a really, really um, important thing to do. So essentially, if you make that sort of agreement, you know, then title, the title to the property is no longer clear because you, as the person who invested your inherited money, you have a, a right to get that money back. You have an interest, you have a, a, a right to title. So just like any other um, lien holder or mortgage or refi or HELOC would go document the fact that they've got that interest, you want to go ahead and document that interest too, even though the specific terms are private. Another thing that is happening a lot in today's environment, it used to be the opposite when property values were going down, but the law says the community ends upon service of the petition for dissolution. And one party frequently is in the house. They are paying for everything related to the house until it's decided what's going to be happening in the family court. Well, all of a sudden, if, for example, if you filed a year ago mm. and served, that house is probably worth 25, 30% more. Mm -hmm. And so you have to figure out what happens to the appreciation. It mm -hmm. used to be what happens to the additional liability after you sell it. 
that you both have. And those are complicated issues also. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two issues. There's who is responsible for paying the mortgage and the expenses associated with the house. So just because you're out of the house doesn't mean necessarily that you're not still responsible for a portion of those expenses. And then there's, well, what about all the appreciation that happened during that time? Um, And so what are the rules with that? Well, uh, generally, a party can request reimbursement if they are paying for all of the expenses at a house and it is community property, even though they're living there, when it's eventually sold or allocated, they can claim those back. And the party that's not living there would argue that all of those ought to be the responsibility of the person who's residing in it. And oftentimes you reach an agreement through negotiation as to how all of that will be handled in a settlement. Yeah. And I think most often you're responsible for at least paying that person back for the amount of principal they paid down. Maybe not the expenses associated with the property, like the taxes and the insurance, but if you pay down on that equity, usually you're responsible to pay back at least half of that. So does that mean that you also, the person, can the person who's not living in the house count on the equity as of the date of the divorce or the date of service when the community ends? Usually, I think the date of divorce with the escalating values. Yeah. And and for example, you have appraisals done. When do you do the appraisal? Mm -hmm. You do the appraisal if you're on the side that wants to keep it low (laughs) on the date of service. But the other side is going to say appraise it now because I have an interest in there. It's not been distributed to me. And until that's done, uh, it should be the date of distribution or more close there too. The same is true of retirement funds. You have to figure out what each is contributed after service, but you have to, before distribution, you have to figure out what was in there as of the date of service and the gains on that without additional contributions through the date of distribution. And it's complex. Well, I think... um... I'm really glad that we did this podcast because community property is much more complex than you might think. And especially if you add on real estate deals, separate property, businesses, then you really need to get yourself to an attorney like Donald, like the godfather who has 40 years of experience, who knows the ins and outs of these issues. Any other words of wisdom for people? You know, it is not black and white. It is murky and gray. And you need to get to people that understand that and can make the best arguments. And then nobody wants to go to trial, but you need to use that through negotiations and enhance your position. And then if you can't resolve it, uh, figure out the cost of going to trial. And, and a lot of times if it takes two parties to resolve it. And if you don't have a resolution, you have to go to trial. But that doesn't happen very often. No, thankfully it doesn't. Most of the time we are able to reach agreements. And usually those agreements are are something that both people can live with. Nobody's ever happy. But if you can both live with it, you can call it a win. Exactly. 
Thank you so much, Don. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Modern Divorce Podcast. Remember, anything you've heard today or anything you read online is not the replacement for actual consultation with an attorney and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Even if you called in and we spoke to you, you are anonymous and we don't have your details and you have not become a client of Modern Law. However, we would love to speak with you or you should seek out the advice of legal counsel or counseling or any other expert near you. And if you have an idea for a show topic or you need to speak with an attorney in Arizona, you can reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at mymodernlaw.com.